Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Okay, welcome to Cinelit. Perhaps strangely, for an audio-only podcast, we are looking at an actor today whose image dominates what people think of him and their thoughts about his history in cinema. Uh, We are looking at the actor James Dean, whose three films were released in a two-year period, only one of which he lived to see. My name is Adam Marsh, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rebecca Taylor. How are you, Rebecca? I'm good, thank you. Hi, everyone. Cool, and uh, we are also joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Yeah, good, thanks, Adam. Nice to be back, and uh, looking forward to uh, chatting about um, someone who maybe wasn't a great actor, but is certainly a, a movie icon. Definitely, the image of him dominates. Most people could tell you what he looks like, but I'm not sure most people could tell you what he sounds like. Do we, do we think that's fair? Yeah, would my I, mum? I, I wonder how many people have even seen the, the, the three movies that we're going to talk about. Yeah. I, th- I think you can be a James yeah. Dean fan without necessarily having seen any of his films. I, th- I think the idea of having a poster of him up on your wall or something is, is enough sometimes, you know. I think with him, definitely. I mean, one of the things that struck me as I was re-watching two of these movies and watching them for the first time one of these movies was they're all in colour, and my images of James Dean, whenever I think of James Dean, is a black and white moody photo. Yeah, and look, looking cool. Looking cool. Yeah, 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 with, yeah. A, with yeah. a cigarette in his mouth or, you know, like leaning up against the wall or something, something, something cool, uh, but in black and white. And seeing him in colour was strange, I'll be honest. I, I, always, I always forget that they're in colour, particularly Rebel Without a Cause. For some reason, I always think Rebel, Rebel Without a Cause is a black and white movie, but it's not. Yeah, for me, I always think as well in pop culture, like obviously with Rebel Without a Cause, you know, the tearing me apart scene, that sort of obviously been spoofed as the most obvious is in Room, but yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I agree. I think the image of James Dean is probably more powerful than his performances. Yeah, so we had, th- so we had three movies, East of Eden, uh, 1955, Rebel Without a Cause, 1955, and Giant, 1956. Um, all three were made in a relatively quick period. Giant 
took a year in the edit suite because the, the director of that movie is quite a meticulous editor. Uh, and he spent a year editing yeah. it. So that came out the following year. So it meant that James Dean, after he passed, was nominated for an Oscar in the two years after he died. I think he's the only actor that that's happened to. He's the only <laughs> actor to be nominated posthumously for two different films. Yeah, but in two different years as well, yeah, yeah. which is really remarkable. Um, yeah, so where, where should, we, should we start? Again, chronologically, it's kind of difficult because they were both made in, in 1955, but the first one that was released and made was East of Eden. Um, yeah. Like as Anne um, movie. And wasn't that the only film that James Dean had, had seen? Yeah, that's the, that's the only yeah. one of the three that he actually was yeah. alive to actually see all the yeah. way through. He might have seen yeah. Rushes and things like that from the other two, but he never saw a complete edit of the other two films. He just finished doing On the Waterfront with Marlon Brando, another Strasbourg actor, but also um, The Streetcar Named Desire as well, which we covered in another podcast. That's right, yeah. So he'd done a couple of films with Brando, and, and he, was an, he was a director that liked working with those quote-unquote method actors coming from, the, like, as you just said, from the Lee Strasberg school of acting, uh, Brando being probably the most famous slash successful of that crop. And Dean was in that mould, whether he was fully in that mould or just enamoured with Brando, I guess is one of those one, one of those questions that's always asked about, always queried about his performances. Is yeah. he just copying Brando? Well, he'd, he'd studied under Strasbourg as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe he'd had exactly the same <laughs> education and training as Brando. Yeah, you know? maybe. The, perhaps it was the, there was this element of the actor's studio that... Uh, you know, people came out of, of this mould sort of thing. So it wasn't Brando, they were all acting like Lee Strasberg, <laughs> that's what it was. <laughs> Even Brando. I, do, <laughs> I do think there are, there is something in that, because when you watch James Dean, if you close your eyes, you could sometimes think it was early roles of Marlon Brando. They definitely have a sort of mumbling going on, whatever that is. Yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> well, I wanted Brando for, for this part and, and then decided that, oh, he's, he's, he's 30 now, he's too old, you know. And it was the scriptwriter Paul Osborne, who somehow knew Dean or had seen him in bit parts in other films because he'd, he'd done four or five little walk-ons uncredited in, in various movies. And Paul Osborne somehow knew him and said, oh, there's, there's, this, there's this other guy who's five, six years younger than Brando, who's also come up through Lee Strasberg, give him a go. And, and they, they tested him and Kazan... I don't think he liked Dean, but, what? but he, he, he thought, he, yeah, he'd be great for the part. Well, I, 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 heard that, I heard that story attributed to the author, John Steinbeck, who, who, met, who met Dean and didn't like him personally at all, but was like... But he's right for that role, yeah, you know, yeah. in, in the sense that, you know, we need another prick to play this role. And he's a prick, all right, so that'll be fine, you know, I guess, was the, yeah. the subtext of his comments there. I can imagine it's possible that, that both are true, that Steinbeck and, mm. and Kazan both reacted to Dean in that way. But, uh, but yeah, the, the script writer of East of Eden was his big champion and said, oh, yeah, here's, here's the new Brando, you know, and, and Kazan went for it. Yeah, so. yeah. Which is not to jump ahead, but is strange in that Brando audition for Rebel Without a Call. So it's kind of they were definitely both at the sort of going for the same sort of roles. Did he did he did he audition for that or did he? Because I was it was it Giant or was it um, Rebel? 
Because I know they had, they had Brando auditioning in the late 40s, didn't they? And they gave him scripts of Rebel Without a Cause, which wasn't the same script that was eventually filmed, and had him read from that. But it was like a blind audition rather than a, a specific thing, I think. Okay. Um, but I think, that, I think you can see that audition tape on the Blu-ray for Streetcar Named Desire or the DVD for that. Um, yeah, it. I think you're right, Adam. I think he was given the script but didn't realise he was auditioning. Yeah, but, I, yeah, I don't think there was ever yeah. sort of like a competition yeah. between the two because immediately they yeah. started building that competition between the two, didn't they? In the press yeah. and the, yeah. in the gossip columns yeah. and stuff. And Brando was famous for being like, you know, he's a knockoff, he's a rip-off, he's, he's you know... He's a, a facsimile of Brando, you know, because <laughs> he likes to refer to himself in the third person. <laughs> Wanker. Anyway, <laughs> but we got, let's get back to East of Eden. So East of Eden is based on the John Steinbeck novel. Well, part, um, part of it, in fact, isn't it? It's because um, uh, Steinbeck's novel is, is huge. Yeah, it covers yeah. a vast period of time very much like Giant does mm. later on. And I, I think they only filmed something like the, the last third of the book or something, which is where yeah. Dean's character comes in. Right, OK, so they're, they're, they're definitely tackling that. But it's obviously a Cain and Abel storyline running through both the, the, the section of the novel and in the film and with, with uh, Dean playing the Cain <laughs> the Kane role, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, um, Daryl, because when I, I watched it for the first time, I it kind of felt a little bit like that, like the other characters of um, uh, uh, Aaron and his girlfriend, I've forgotten her name. Um, you know, like they had established a relationship and you, there wasn't much backstory. You sort of would jump straight in. Yeah, um, as, so as it's though, interesting. As though you're coming yeah. on part four or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting you say that, yeah. yeah. And, and the novel and the film are set in uh, Salinas in California, which is where uh, Steinbeck was born. So it was territory that he, he was basically, he was doing the classic author thing, write what you know. Yeah, yeah. And as you say, attaching the, the Bible story to that, bringing that up to date into into twentieth century America. It's a, it's an interesting movie. It's it's definitely got um, it's got that style about it, and it brings colour, which you get from from Kazan. I think Kazan had done obviously was it? I don't know if it was it was his first colour picture. It for may, Kazan, it may have been yes. Um, yeah. I mean, on the waterfront was the year before, and that's black and white, you know. And uh, Streetcar was a few years earlier, and that was black and white. So maybe it was the first color, but they certainly capitalise on the color in, the, in that sort of like sun-drenched um, California landscape um, of, of Salinas um, and the widescreen as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's in that sense, it's a it's a typical mid fifties Hollywood movie. You know, it's big and bold and and colourful. I mean, a lot of a lot of the stuff he's doing in this role, kind of like he repeats in Rebel. I mean, Rebel without a cause is, has got a sort of rock and roll sensibility to it, and this has got no no sort of chicken runs, no knife fights. What it has got is lots and lots of talk about beans, ice, and lettuce. <laughs> so it ain't exactly uh, you know Jerry Lee Lewis, is it? No, it's not the same, but it, in in the sense of like disaffected 
frustration, anger in the character rather than the actual story. Yeah. I guess more is what I was getting at. Yeah. Now, we've already said that, you know, Dean, Dean in sort of conventional acting terms, may not be a great actor, but what he is is a great, across all three films, and I think it starts here, he's a great electrifying screen presence. And I, th- I think that... Has, certainly among film fans, the people that know the films, I think that is is part of what has what has sort of created the myth, as as well as him dying young and and, and looking cool. You know, I, th- I think if if you judge him on his screen performances, um, you know, they they you you I think you can criticise a lot of what he does on screen, but you can't deny that you can't take your eyes off him. I'm not sure about that. I'm going to throw that out. There. I'm not sure about that. I mean, like, I think there's sections of his films where he is a magnetic presence. And I think maybe it's them not knowing what they've got with him, the directors, or they, him not fully understanding how to be a screen actor. But there's whole sections in the bit where he just feels like he's ambled onto the screen rather than being that magnetic set. Particularly, particularly in, in Rebel, you find like just, just some sequences where you just think, he's, he's, he's just not there. He's I, not engaged. I, I, so I, I, I agree with that, but I sort of see that as being part of the call. You know, that's, that's part of the persona, that he is like this brooding presence that's just waiting to explode, and then occasionally he does explode. I think it's all part of the same thing. What about you, Becky? What, what do you think about Dean's sort of charisma and his, his whole sort of aura? Yeah, um, it's interesting, because I, but I think I'm more lean towards Adam in the sense of I'm more curious on whether he's more being himself as James Dean, an actor, than a character, because... There's obviously a theme throughout all three of his movies of a vulnerability and a sort of being an outcast, being an outsider, um, but in a vulnerable kind of way, in a way that he wants acceptance, he wants to be part of the crowd. And I don't know if that's deliberate or not. And obviously we weren't, we didn't have the opportunity to see if he grew out of that typecast of being the sort of vulnerable uh, character. But... Uh, yeah, I, I'm curious to know whether that is actually him or if that, or actually he's a better actor than I thought and that was part of the plan and part of the process. There, there is a sense there that you're, you're suggesting that rather than acting in these movies, he's, he's, he's doing more of the sort of playing himself thing. Mm, yeah, yeah, and I'd just be curious to... To, to sort of find out really more about his life. And there's always a question mark there. And I don't know if that's sort of part of the the whole sort of persona of James Dean. And it's sort of his roles and him himself have kind of been mixed up together because we just have a, a real short snapshot of his life which is sort of a teenage sort of angst that you feel when you feel not accepted and, you know, um, vulnerable and and confused and don't know where you are in life, Um, which obviously in East of Eden, the character of Cal is that. He's confused about his mother, confused about why he's not accepted by his father. And, you know, I'm curious to know if that was deliberate or if that was actually a bit of James Dean coming into the role. 
Yeah, if if he is just playing himself, certainly in 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 this first role, this first major role in East of Eden. If if that's the case, if he's if he's sort of playing himself or playing a version of himself, what what did Hollywood see in that? What did Hollywood see in him? It's it's an interesting one because the Hollywood immediately stuck him in his first, his first male lead in a Liar Kazan movie with, with a major director, with a major director, yeah, major yeah. cast, and he's already and he's nominated for two Oscars. In, in in the first two years of his acting, granted he died, but he's still he's at the tippy top of the of the profession. Yeah, in I many can't ways. I can't think of anyone else in the business that, that that's happened to. That, that occasionally people have been nominated for their debut, but uh, they've they've not sustained that. You know, in in the case, in the few cases where that's happened, they they've been a sort of one shot. You know, and and here mm. was a suggestion that this guy was an instant star, but there was this idea that he might actually carry that on. And then, of course, we know what happened and that truncated it all. But uh, um, there was a sense, I think, that, that oh, yeah, this, this guy's the future. You know, mm. almost, like, as, as we've said, almost as though they were looking for a replacement for Marlon Brando at this early stage in Brando's career. They were already looking for the next Brando. And they, they thought, oh, we found him in, in James Dean and... Here's his career path, you know, because I think Nicholas Ray and Kazan were, were talking to him about doing other movies um, after, after mm. these as well. So uh, it's interesting that that James Dean was being positioned as the the person who's going to change the industry and, and shape the future of the industry. When lurking around in the background in two of those movies was one of the men who actually did that with Dennis Hopper yeah. cropping up in a couple of small roles, and he would ten years later. Yeah, it took, it took, him, it took him time to do, but <laughs> he, he got there. Yeah, yeah. But that was breaking away, wasn't it? Oh, as sure, well. yeah. Of the Hollywood system, so maybe that's a little bit of that frustration going there of being the you know making sort of a own seat uh, instead of waiting for a seat at the table, you know, sort of making your own table. You, um, you do wonder whether whether James Dean had he lived, would he be seen as that? I mean, the way that that that, that wave of of new Hollywood um, actors and directors saw Brando as being the first of of, of yeah. them. Would they have seen James Dean in that same light, or would he have been? No, you know, you're a studio guy. You're the you're you're the enemy in some do, ways. Do you know? Do you know what Adam? I, I've I've got a theory on this. This is obviously total conjecture. Um, oh, we love total yeah, conjecture yeah. on this podcast. And, and a, sort of, a sort of personal theory, but uh, I, I think if you look at the career of someone like Russ Tamblin, it might indicate the path that someone like Dean may have gone down had he lived. Tamblin was, you know, uh, getting these sort of juvenile roles, um, big in sort of West Side Story, of course, you know, and, and he'd, he'd done a couple of other Hollywood musicals, but he was known as sort of juvenile lead, not quite as rock and roll as, as, as James Dean, but uh, not quite as cool, but in, in the same sort of ballpark. What was the way he was in one of those rock and roll movies, wasn't he, from... Yes, yeah, he he did. Mamie Van Doren sort of, and something yeah, like that. Yeah, he did sort of dabble in 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 the sort of youth youth culture movies. Yeah, um, but then um, his career sort of waned in the mid sixties, and, and by the end of the sixties, he was doing Japanese monster movies, and he was appearing. Um, he'd, he'd hooked up with the Al Adamson, the, the great cult director, and was making westerns and biker movies for Al Adamson. And I wonder if James Dean might well have fallen out of favour in that same way. Because I think across the three films that we've seen, charismatic and, and um, electric, though he is in all three, 
you know, in whole or in part, however you see it, I think we'd seen the whole box of tricks by the end of Giant. I really do, and we'll 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 talk about that as we go through the individual films. But I I think we'd sort of seen everything that Dean had to offer in these three movies. And I wonder if we'd just have ended up with with a repetition of that. I think his career may well have waned in the same way that a lot of the other sort of teen and -and up-and-coming stars of the 50s did, Russ Tamblin being a very good example of that. But then, by the end of the 60s, as you've already suggested... Maybe linking up, he may have, may have even got a part in Easy Rider. You know, he might have uh, called in a favour from his old mate Dennis Hopper, or may well have got involved with someone on the uh, at the lower end of the counterculture and ended up doing these these sort of odd late sixties, early seventies westerns, biker movies, science fiction, what, whatever else was going. It's impossible to say what, what would have happened to Dean, but I think look at the career of Russ Tamblin and there's there's a possibility. Yeah, I mean he was higher than Russ Tamblin ever got, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and high out the gate. So you think maybe he would have hung around longer. The name would think, have carried some some sure. sort of cachet through any problem period. And judging from his first three films, directors picked him. And I think a lot of what um, the success of people like Bogart, like those stars of that period and earlier, it's the people they work with. And I think if if Nicholas Ray or Eli Kazan decided that James Dean was the the guy they were going to work with in a way of like a Leonardo DiCaprio he tends to pick directors really well that he works with that have continued him at a high level in his career. I could have seen James doing James Dean doing a similar thing. Having said that, though, Kazan and Ray didn't really last all that much longer. They, no. they fell out of favour too, so their, their influence and their support might not have meant all that much by about 1965. And, and um, as I say, Dean's particular shtick may well have fallen out of fashion too. You know, okay, we, what we've got here is the new Monty Cliff, the new Marlon Brando. Well, who who wanted that in 1965, 66? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is that to consider as well, I think. Yeah. Obviously, he, he's known for his juvenile, delinquent, troubled, confused teens roles, which was a relatively new thing in cinema full stop. Um, the, the, the idea of a teenager in cinema. I mean, I guess what the wild one, um, things like that, had, had ushered in that teens on screen kind of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, in, in classic Hollywood fashion, of course, he's he's what twenty three, twenty four years of old. Of course, so, yeah, yeah. So he's a teen in his mid twenties, but then aren't they all? You know. But Becky mentioned earlier the um, classic "They're tearing me apart." scene from Rebel Without a Cause. Mm-hmm. And I, I think James Dean sort of does a version of that in all, all three of these films. There's, in fact, there's, there's a couple in East of Eden, I think, you know, and Kazan gave him his head as well. He, 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 he was brave enough to give this kid a bit of on-screen leeway. And there's, there's the scene in the bean field where um, Dean gets to sort of dance and sort of cavort around... And then there's there's um, there's a scene where he's sort of arguing with his father as well, 
and he gets to sort of really emote and, and do all of the sort of stuff that he's learned from Lee Strasberg. And uh, that must have been great, really. That must have felt so sort of free and, and, uh, and great for him to be able to do something like that while Hollywood cameras were, were rolling and pointing at him. And not many actors were given that, that, that sort of freedom. You do, you do wonder whether that would have spoiled him. You know, come, come the fourth movie when he gets like um, a William Wilder or someone like that, yeah, yeah. or a Billy Wilder or someone like that yeah. coming on going, going, actually, no, no, just do it, do it the way it's in the script, James. Yeah, he's, just he's do not, it in the script. He's not going to be working for Alfred Hitchcock. Anyway, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. he's not going to be that. That rigid yeah. structure. But uh, I mean, the extraordinary scene in East of Eden, I think, is the one where, um, because the, the whole point is that the Cain and Abel type characters find out that their mother's alive. They, they, they believe that their mother's been dead for years. They find, that, find out that she's alive, but that she's got a rather sort of insalubrious sort of lifestyle. And um, after he's had this sort of traumatic visit to his mother, he does what, what a, a, a rebel character would do. He, he sort of hitches a free ride on, on the roof of a train carriage. And then, and, and this apparently wasn't scripted, because Anne just said, you know, do, do whatever you feel. He sort of wraps himself up in his clothing and sort of curls into a, a sort of fetal-like uh, position. And... Um, Again, it's, it's, it's riveting to watch, but uh, as you say, you wonder how many times he would have been allowed to get away with that. But, yeah. it's, but it's great to see in the three films that we've got, you know, whenever he, whenever he is given his head like that. He, gets the, he, get, he does get the chance to, uh, well, like I say, allegedly stretches what he'd done on screen previously. He took on the role of giant as a way of breaking free of those um, stereotypes even though he'd only done two movies you know he already was thinking I want to do something different or maybe he was thinking I can only do so much I need to try and establish another string to my bow a little bit with, with Giant but I, I don't know yeah. how it works though I, I, I see Giant as very much a part of, of, of yeah. the, the, the Dean persona you know he's still doing that same shtick he's still doing those same little acting ticks um, the only difference for me is he's playing a character who ages during the course of the film and uh, but he, he ends up playing a sort of 45 year old teenager though the only difference is he's wearing yeah. a Stetson yeah, 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 yeah. Or he's got a false, you know, a bit of false facial <laughs> hair on or something. Yeah, no. yeah. Um, but yeah, his 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 character aged 40 is still James Dean curling up into a ball or holding his arms out to the camera in a, in a sort of gesture of love me, love me, you know. And... But it just takes three hours, 20 minutes to get there. <laughs> um... and, and, you know, I, I sound like I'm criticising. I, I actually think the performances are, are riveting, but... It's the same performance. Well, I, I, um, when I said when I say he wanted to break free of that, whether he could is another matter. I think that's what we've been talking about: whether the unrealized potential, or had we seen everything? Like, like you, was, you was implying that we'd already seen everything in his bag of tricks. I, I, I think he didn't get the opportunity because. I think the reason why he was fortunate to work with such um, experienced directors and things is because he was so perfect for the role. And I'm, again, thinking it might be something to do with him as a person, that he just represented what they were looking for. You know, somebody that was a bit lost, didn't know their direction and, you know, had some anger building up that they didn't really know 
you, that you don't really, you know, is going to explode at, at some point, but you don't know when. Um, and I think he was fortunate that those two roles in East of Eden and Rebel Without a Cause required him to be that character. But I don't think, yeah, I think we, he never had the opportunity to break out of that stereotype because even though in Giant he's not a teenager, he's still, again, battling with the... I, you know, the ideal version or the the seeking approval, you know, um, in more of a sense of with uh, Elizabeth Taylor's character of Leslie, like he, instead of with with the parents, he's now looking at the love interest because he wants acceptance. So it's sort of, I just feel like e- even though Giant's a bit, yeah, is a bit more removed from the first two films, um, Again, he's still stereotyped as that person that's misunderstood and an outcast. Um, and I think I'm, I don't know, he could have gone on to do break out of that stereotype, but I think it's unfair to, you know, it, 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 he didn't really have a, an opportunity yeah. to demonstrate that. Again, you know? I guess the thing is simply, we'll never know. Yeah. I think the thing about Giant, which I find, which I found jarring, and I don't know whether it's just me, because he is the embodiment of that delinquent teen and you see him in east of eden as a teenager and you see him uh, like you know quote in quotes teenager and then you see him in rebel without a cause as a teenager and then you see him in giant and he's supposed to be i think he's supposed to be older isn't he yeah well the, early the, the 20s fil- kind of early period of time isn't no it? i mean initially at the start I think he's not. I, don't I think he's, he's probably more playing his sort of real age at the start and right. then he ages into his 40s. so he's supposed to be mid 20s yeah. but i think I don't, for me, I don't think the pairing of him and Elizabeth Taylor works in the sense that he looks like a boy and she looks like a woman and Rock Hudson looks like a man mm. and he looks like a boy. And, it's, it, and I don't think the triangle works for me in, in, in that way. See, I think it does because, again, he's being that stereotype again of seeking approval. You know, I'm a sense of... She is the older woman, but it's, again, seeking approval from somebody older than you. I still think that's still part of his stereotype. Mm. And then that's part of the story, I, personally, I think. Yeah, I, I, I see it as being, it's, it's just Hollywood glamour casting, you know, and whether, mm. whether it works or not doesn't matter. What matters is the names on the poster, you know. Yeah. And even in, in Giant, there's, there's even, as you know, the, the progression of time is shown in all kinds of strange ways, one of which is... The, the greying of the hair of these three central characters. And even, even when they get sort of flecks of grey in their hair, Rock Hudson, Liz Taylor and James Dean all still look as, as glamorous as it's possible to look, you know. Um, and so even that ageing process, Hollywood can't accept that and it still has to make them look amazing, you know, and it does. So, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't think you're necessarily supposed to buy that as real, you know. You, you're supposed to just accept this is a big, brassy Hollywood product. We've got these three major stars for you. Enjoy, you know, and, 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 if, and if you're going to pick at it, you're, you're the wrong audience. Mm-hmm. I think it's one. Of, I think Giant's one of those interesting films where it, I don't necessarily think that James Dean is a good fit for that kind of film, even though the stereo, the character is a good fit for him. 
being in that kind of movie, I just don't. I just don't. I feel like he doesn't belong. Is in is that, kind is of that movie. because of, is that because of the presence of other other stuff? Do you not? Do you think I just doesn't I, work alongside? I the think. Other uh, yeah, I think it's the world. I, th- I think James Dean, in some ways, is that he is that that delinquent that character actor that sort of like method actor the the, the guy who's going to pour his heart into the role and this is just like stand next to the horse kind of a film isn't it it's like look at the magnificent vista of this 595,000 acre uh, land uh, and look pretty up look pretty on screen and I don't know whether he fits that kind of a movie whereas Rock Hudson fits that kind of movie Elizabeth Taylor fits that kind of movie what supports your view there Adam is the fact that yeah James Dean does get to do his his emoting and his ranting at the camera but he does it at a point where his character is in his 40s and he's become a success Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it's not the teenage rebel doing all of that suddenly it's like you say it's a guy in a cowboy hat I disagree because I think the whole point of the story is that he gets those riches. He has all of that success, but he doesn't have he doesn't have what he's searching for. The same way is with East of Eden. You know, he makes a success with his business, but he he still doesn't seek the approval of his father. Um, so I, I disagree. I think with Giant, he, he's still seeking for what he truly wants and he thought it was money and then it turns out it isn't and again it's sort of seeking that approval seeking seeking something that you might not necessarily know that you you want but you you know you're trying to find out what you truly want so I disagree with that I I mean I, think I, I, I agree that the it. character that's what the character's doing and that's yeah the character the character fits the story I just don't yeah. know whether I just don't know whether that would have been better served to have um, Paul Newman playing the role instead or or someone like that. Whereas just James Dean, uh, even at that point, I can't, I, for instance, I couldn't see Marlon Brando in this kind of a movie either. So does, does the part need it's, an actor? It needs a star, an actor, an actor star image, but like someone who's not worrying about like having his emoting scenes and things like yeah. that I, I do I do take Becky's point though because I, I think there's there can there can be a sense with this character even though he ages and even though he gets success and, and he ages into his 40s um, there is this sense that he's still he, he remains a sort of man boy sort of character yeah. and that there, there will always be these sort of tantrums and so on when things don't go his way and in that sense, Dean's the perfect actor to play that part. So I think I think there are arguments on both sides. Mm, I, mean, I think maybe it's just the scale of the picture. I, I just don't. I think he feels uncomfortable. You think he's overwhelmed by that? I don't know. If it's overwhelmed. But I just, I, I just, I, it's like a jigsaw with the wrong piece put in there, and it, it fits. <laughs> it fits. The piece actually fits, but it's not part of the picture. It's a, it's a piece from another, another jigsaw. It's like it's been wedged in. I, I disagree. I disagree. I think, yeah. So, uh, yeah but then I again, I wasn't I a big think, fan of that film. I think if Paul Newman done it, it would be, you'd think to yourself, just move on. Because like, cause Paul Newman's just so perfect. Well, that well, 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 I'm like, sorry, I, I meant like, more of like... A, why would... I meant yeah. more of a Hollywood star rather yeah. than a James Dean type where he's coming from that school of, of Strasbourg's acting, method acting. I, I think he's more of a traditional Hollywood actor. 
Yeah, New- Newman yeah. is a good fit because I think Newman could sort of do both. Yeah, but I mean, he's a very pretty man. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's yeah. kind of like maybe, maybe. I mean, that, that movie would have been the shortest movie ever because he's like, she, Elizabeth Taylor would rock up at, at the ranch in Texas and go, oh my God. And then the movie's over and she's run off with Paul Newman. You know, it's like dumb. Yeah. But I think that that is why James Dean is perfect for the role in the sense that it's not quite there. He hasn't got the confidence and the charisma that is needed, you know, um, that character hasn't, and then James Dean hasn't. So I feel like if it was a more established actor or, you know, like a Paul Newman, they, they would have the confidence to say, you know, um, and, and get there and not have, have to seek approval from other people. Um, and that's why I just, I just feel like the whole of James Dean's work was very much there's a theme of seeking approval from somebody, whether it doesn't make sense or not. You think to yourself, why do you need approval from that person? But there always is a theme. He's always looking. And I think that Giant fits in with that. Um, it's just, it's sort of taken a little bit a few years later. But yeah, I, I disagree. As you know, it's one of my favourite films. So I think <laughs> it's quite hard for me to find fault in it. Um, well, it, but, well, it's yeah. a good film because you can, you, you, it can be your favourite film and it's three, and t- three hours, 20 minutes. So it's like somebody else's four favourite films all crammed <laughs> together in one, isn't it? Yeah, but it isn't in, in that sense. It really does anticipate, you know, Dallas and, and Dynasty from 25 years later, doesn't it? You know, it, it so. does, and also in some ways it's very much rooted in that that 50s epic of uh, of Hollywood cinema. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, we've got the, the biggest canvas we can possibly get. Oh, yeah, well, CinemaScope's just come in, and, yeah. and, and, and the, the length of films is 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 now starting to echo the, the new screen size, isn't it? So, uh, um, and, and the cast here is, is as stellar as it gets. So, uh, what, what do we think? I mean, we've, we've talked about Dean's great sort of emotive scenes, and he, he, he gets a classic here where he delivers this big speech to an empty room. What, what, do, we, what do we think about that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm coming across as a neg- Mr. Negative Nelly on this movie, but it just felt, for me, it just felt like I, I wasn't invested in his problems, <laughs> ultimately. I didn't give a crap that he was always pining after the Leslie character throughout the movie. I just, I just didn't care. I really didn't care. And it was just like, it, 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 it lost me on numerous occasions. And a three-hour, 20-minute movie, just like, you've got to hold your audience for me. And he didn't. Right. So okay. by the time I got to him, he moved into an empty room. I was just like, don't care, mate. I don't care. I really don't care about your problems. You know? <laughs> For me, I I took it as he thought that money and success was what he wanted and now he's realising he's still not getting that satisfaction that he wanted, to that accomplishment. Um, and to just realisation that actually maybe it's something else he's searching for. And he thinks it's the Leslie character, but it might not be. It might be something else, you know. Um, I think it's the fact that he's trying to find that approval somewhere, but he doesn't even really know where that is. And, yeah, like I said, I think it goes across all of the three films. But I do get The Giant is one of those sort of epic films in that it's sort of more done like a theatre show. You know, you're supposed to... It has a break, in intermission break and things like that, and you're supposed to sort of watch it sort of... Sort of as you know, in parts. Um, so it can be, but I... It's funny, you I mentioned that, didn't you, Daryl, earlier yeah. on? That, that it does... It, 
it does require three sittings in yeah. some way to yeah. get the best but, out of it. But because, because it uh, anticipated episodic soap yeah. opera TV of the 80s, mm. You, you can watch it like that. You know, yeah. it, you can watch 45 minutes at a time in the way that you watch three episodes of Dallas. And, and similar, when we were talking about David Lean on the David Lean podcast and we talked about audiences knowing the story, this was a massively popular book as well. Yeah. And, you know, it sold over, like, 50 million copies by the time this screen adaptation was coming And, again, people out. would have read the novel in chapters so you can watch the film. Yeah, and, know, and they would have been familiar with it as well. Yeah. So yeah. they would have been like knowing the ebb and flow of the storyline better than me approaching it from cold, with cold eyes. Um, we've not spoken too much about Rebel Without a Cause yet, and mm. arguably that's the one that most people would have seen of his career, and it's certainly the one that... Um, well, it's got the best title for a start, Rebel Without a Cause, to the point where... Uh, it was Warner Brothers who put it out. Warner Brothers um, bought the title... Of, the, of a book called Rebel Without a Cause inside the mind of a violent criminal or something like that and it had nothing to do with the story they played. they solely bought the book so they could have the title yeah were, were you saying earlier that uh, Brando was involved with, with a project under, under this time I, 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 well, that ended up being nothing nothing like the film that we know yeah they had they had um, they had they bought it in the 40s and had been kicking it around for a few years, and Brando read some of that as a... I think it was like a mood pieces for him, for like a blind audition sort of thing, where you just read stuff and uh, to get what he looked like on screen, I guess. Um, but yeah, I don't think he was ever auditioning for the actual film. But it, it's an interesting movie, yeah, I think. Yeah. And I, what, what, what is interesting about it, I think, is that, is that not only have you got James Dean as a sort of disaffected youth, but you've got two others. You've got Natalie Wood and Sal Minio I well. think I think Natalie Wood in this movie was far better than I remember it when I was watching it. Cause I, I, particularly in that first 30 minutes of that movie, she's horrible. She's a proper horrible, spoiled <laughs> kid. And, and and she nails that perfectly, yeah, yeah. but then still manages to turn it around in the second half when she becomes more sympathetic and, yeah, and more yeah. likable. Oh yeah, she's 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 got a real character arc. I think mm. where, where and Dean, Dean probably hasn't, and Salmenio probably hasn't. But uh, all three characters, all three central characters here. Get get to do a James Dean, you know. They they all have their James Dean moments, uh, and he's he's he's, you know, it's it's that old gag about Ringo Starr not being the best drummer in the Beatles. He might not be the best James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, talking about story arc, Salminio's character story arc. When you start off by killing puppies. Yeah, yeah. There's not much much of an act and, to go on, is there? <laughs> in the police station, screams yeah. out, nobody can help me, you know. Mm. And Dean's on the sidelines thinking, why didn't my agent make sure I got that line? Mm. Yeah, but, but there's no story out for him. But James Dean, I, I must admit that that first... There's not many actors in the history of cinema that can do drunk acting very well. And I think he nails it. Yeah, yeah. he absolutely nails drunk acting in that first ten minutes. It's it's a real sort of like. I mean, and and the fact that it's in the first ten minutes of the movie, I think it's eighteen minutes all in that in that in that police station. It's a it's a real statement, isn't it? At the start of the film, look at this guy. Look at how good he is. It's a a showcase. It's absolutely a showcase. And then then it gets into the fairly prosaic storyline that that we that we get we follow up with like teen rebellion and 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 chicken runs and things like that. Um, 
But that first 20 minutes, it's just like, yeah, this is what this kid can do. Yeah. Um, one thing I love in Rebel Without a Cause, and, and I'd say if people watch the film again, we've, we've said how great the three juvenile leads are. You know, that, that goes without saying. Um, watch the performances of the older characters. Mm. Watch the performances of, of the actors playing Dean and Natalie Wood's parents. And the way they, they're, they're established character players in Hollywood. They've all been through the mill. They've been around for years. They're suddenly having to play against this new whirlwind force of, of youth that has hit Hollywood in the mid-50s. And look at how professionally they deal with that. But they, they, they channel that in some ways. I mean, because actually not understanding your kids is kind of the subtext of those actors. Yeah, yeah. Not understanding the this new wave but, but of actors. They're, they're, they're canny enough to feed into that and, and make that part oh, exactly. of the I mean, is, is that, that, is that yeah, famous, yeah. There's that famous Laurence Olivier quote about Dustin Hoffman where he's like, you know, a Dustin Hoffman is marathon man. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm getting ready for a scene so I'm going to run around the block so I can look out of breath. And he's like, have you tried acting, kid? <laughs> you know, it's like, and it is that kind of like, but in this case, it's more of a case of like, all right, all right, let's, let's go along with this. Let's see what we can do. And I think the interesting thing about those parents is they not your stereotypical fifties parents that you see mm. in in any number of sitcoms or or, um, or films of that period? They're very different types of characters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're not they're not your. My parents don't understand me, man, and they're really stern. Yeah, and they're, they're not completely down. establishment, are they? Not they're, at they're, all. They're, they're I know. All sort of forgiving and, and trying to sort of understand their, their sons and daughters, you know. Yeah. And there are some great scenes there. I think I think some really good interplay. Yeah, I think that's the, I think that's one of the real pluses of this movie is that those characters they are trying to understand yeah. these characters yeah. and it's not like the as, the, as, as do the police and all yeah, of the authority yeah. figures in the film exactly it's, but, the, but, and the kids the kids sort of don't want that they're, they're more establishment in a way in that they they want to be rebels and it's like oh right the older generation aren't letting us rebel they're, they're trying to sort of get in on this you know and, we don't want that either, you yeah. know. <laughs> but, but I like, I mean, it's, it's definitely, I think it adds to the layers to the film. I agree. That potentially, agree. like, something like The Wild One is not there. You know, you have what you, is, is that the one where you, what you're rebelling against, what do you got kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. And it's just like, you know, there's not that there. We say, we want to understand what's going That's on with you. That's much more black yeah. and white, cut and dry. Absolutely, it? yeah. You know, it wasn't it's much more, yeah, it is, it is. You've got boundaries there. Whereas in Rebel Without a Cause, the, the only potential boundaries are actually being put up by the kids, mm. you know. That, that, that sort of gets in the way of their happiness, you know, where, whereas if, if, if the parent figures had that and the authority figures had their way, you know, the, the kids could be assimilated into, into a, a, a nice lifestyle, you know, and they're, they're, they're so sort of caught up in whatever they think their troubles are inside their minds that, that, um, that they, they, they can't sort of see beyond that. They're you know? so busy caught up in their own drama yeah. that they can't in, in see a, a good a way, thing they're, coming up. They're, they're the sort of restrictive figures in, in the movie, you know. And, uh, uh, in that, it, I mean, in that, way, in that way, it's a very modern film. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, it's 1955, so it's, it's, it's over 50 years old. Yeah. And it's like, you can see that kind of dynamic in a movie now, mm. in, in movies yeah. that are released nowadays, where you have the parents trying to understand the difficulties that their kids are going through, and 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 those those nuances being heightened, you can really see that in, in it's very ahead of its time in that respect. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, in in sort of symbolic terms, it, it, it's noticeable that the, uh, the the big knife fight in in the movie takes place around the telescope. They're actually fighting around a, a standing mm. telescope, one of these things that looks out over the bay or something, and and. Uh, Again, the, the 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 idea there that they're fighting around the symbol of, of you know sort of looking into the future or into the distance, and they're ignoring that because they they just want to sort of cut each other up, you know. Yeah. And uh, the the kids are in their own little world. You get that with the, the 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 chicken run as well. There's a nice little visual there where the um when when they play the game of chicken on on the cliff edge, you know. All of the teenagers line they line their cars up to make a sort of run, uh, um, a sort of makeshift road up to the edge of the cliff, and they all switch on their car headlights, and that's actually echoed by the police headlights right at the very end of the film. Oh, okay. So uh, you know um, maybe these these worlds aren't so far apart after all. Yeah, I mean, I, I, watching it again, uh, I saw it years ago. I always thought it was the the, the lesser of the three. And now I'm not too sure of watching it again. There's, there's a lot more layers to this movie than I originally thought there was. And not, not in the least of it, in just G- James Dean's performances, yeah. but in, I, in the I, whole I cast. Think, I think there's a tendency to write it off a little bit as, oh, it's, it's, it's a sort of JD film. It's a, you know, it is, it is a sort of rock and roll, kids with knives, um, hoodlum movie. And, and it's, it, there's, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, I mean, the knife, like, the knife fights is a perfect example of that. It doesn't quite go as way I was expecting it. It kind of starts off as a big knife fight and then just kind of... But it's a knife fight where neither of them want to be in the knife fight, <laughs> which I think is fascinating. It's not normally, it's just like, click, come on, kid, we're going to fight, you know. And here it was more kids like, do you want to fight? You fight, you fight first. No, you fight, no, you fight. It was like, all right. And they kind of like, yeah, it's not, it's begrudging. Not, it's, not, it's not West Side Story, No, is not yeah, at all, yeah. not at all. I think, I think there's definitely a really interesting layer on what they're doing and what they want to actually do in the, in this movie. It runs right through it, I think. Um what do you reckon, Becky? Is it does it speak to you? From that? Yeah, <laughs> I would say I'm the opposite. I'd say it's my least favorite out of the three. Um, but yeah, again, uh, I agree with you in the sense of the the way it put. Well, the first time I saw it, the way it, it portrays the parents, it's not they're not that that cliche establishment parents at all. Um, and yeah, it talks to me in a sense of, you know, um, being misunderstood again. But I think it focuses too much. Well, like the, the impression is that it, fo- it focuses too much on that. And I kind of feel like there's more to it than, than just that sort of teen angst sort of against the parents. And I think Sal's character is interesting as a sort of... Um, What's the word? Cases for the story to to, to go on, um, but yeah, I'd say it's it's my least favourite one because it's the one when it, whenever you see a full yeah. of the James Dean James Dean movie, it'll be that movie. It's a yeah. modern movie. It's a night well, modern for the nineteen fifties, whereas the other two were mm. set in you know were period pieces. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's very much of its time in in that respect. Maybe that's why. On one hand, it's got the most profile, but equally, it's, it's easily dismissed 
because of its contemporary of the 1950s. Whereas the other two, yeah. because they were period pieces at the time, they're almost timeless yeah, yeah. in that respect. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. this is a very, that is just a 1955 film, isn't mm. it? But, uh, yeah. um, Having said that, the, the second half of the whole second half of the movie is very, very interesting because it almost becomes like a little juvenile teenage version of Sunset Boulevard or something mm. like that. The three juve, main juvenile leads go off to this weird abandoned mansion and there's, there's this whole routine where Salminero sort of pretends to be an estate agent yeah. and James Dean and Natalie Wood sort of act like a couple as though they're looking around the place and they sort of joke about uh, how much they're going to pay for rent and, and so on and it's got this old abandoned swimming pool and like you know dead leaves everywhere and stuff and it really does have that sort of Sunset Boulevard sort of ambience and, and this takes up a, a good portion of the second half of the film. I'm, I'm sure the audiences at the time had all gone, gone in to, to see knife fights and things like that. We're, we're, we're sort of baffled by halfway through when, when, it, when it took this turn. I mean, this film was released just a month after James Dean died in a car accident. And then this movie, which has a fairly high-profile car accident sequence... Um, that was too good an opportunity for Warner Brothers to miss, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, that, and they that, had to cash in on that straight away. Advertising. Yeah. 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 Sick, really. But so really, ultimately, you know, well, yeah. When has that ever stopped Hollywood? Well, they? they had to release it at some point, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and more people saw it, I guess, because of that. Do you think that the audience is going in there? Were going in there for to see knife fights and car accidents, or were they going in there to see? James Dean's last movie. What they thought was James Dean's both, last movie. So this, this, you know, one of them's one of them they delivered in spades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the stuff we were talking about earlier about this this sort of merging of, of the worlds of, of the parents and and the kids. Yeah, you know, I've, I've just compared the film to, to Sunset Boulevard. I think there's there's a film made. Uh, well, it was in production around this same time. And it came out in 1956. Uh, Don Siegel's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm. and I think there are elements of that here, in that the, the, the kids are, are given the choice that they can either continue their sort of rebellious lifestyle, or they can just give in and, and accept the things that their parents are saying to them. They're in the same position as the characters in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm. where... Okay, you don't necessarily want to give in to the aliens, but to do so might might not actually be all that bad. You know, you'd be the same as everyone else. You'd be living in your little box house, you know, getting up at the same time every day and so on. And and there is that sense in Rebel Without a Cause with that whole issue that we discussed earlier. I mean, uh, I mean, do do they? I mean, they do give in at the end. Yeah, is yeah. that is that Hollywood's? So that's that's revenge like, on that, the kids. That's, that's like the, the 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 terrible version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Then it's like the aliens win at the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's Hollywood. I, kids, I agree. Yeah. What 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 do we think about the title Rebel Without a Cause? Who 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 is the rebel? Because I, I think I think there are a few possible answers to that. I think most of the cast of the rebels without causes out, and they're all rebelling in many different ways, particularly on the on the key cast. Yeah. I think it's the same as what I was saying before about sense of rebelling, but not one hundred percent sure what you're rebelling against or yeah, what yeah. you what you want from that. You know, just it's just that uh, sort of that adolescent age. You just are slightly angry, but you don't really know why. You know, <laughs> like it's 
maybe it's a hormone thing or, you know, I think it's a part of finding yourself that you just feel like nobody understands and you don't really know either what, what you're looking for, what you want. And would, um, would you so, agree that that describes several characters in the movie? It's not just James Dean, is it, who, who feels like no. Well, I think, I think they're three main characters. Yeah, yeah. They're, all, they're all rebels yeah. without a cause. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, and Sam Mignon's character, Plato, yeah. was it? He, his character was definitely... Plato, you know, yeah. he's, he, it's, it's almost to the point of sort of like nihilism, isn't yeah. it? His I, I, I think if, 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 you, if you were absolutely forced to say, pick one character who this title refers to, it's him rather yeah. than Dean or Natalie Wood. Mm-hmm. But, but I think the fact that it applies to all three of them makes it a fantastic movie title. Mm. And I think uh, has definitely helped its longevity. Yeah. I mean, yeah. more so than Giants and Easter Well, the, 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 phrase, the phrase sort of went yeah. into common parlance, didn't it? You know, and it's been parodied so often and so on, you know, and still talked about. You, you say that now, people who don't even know the movie know, know the title and the phrase, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Sort of become... James Dean and that film's become a symbol of being a teenager those years, you know. Do you know what, um, that, that yeah. sort of contradicts what Adam was saying earlier? You were saying how this is the one film out of the three that maybe isn't timeless. Perhaps in, in that sense it is, you know. Perhaps there are, there are always going to be rebels without a cause. I, I guess so. I mean, I mean, I would argue that teenagers today have causes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, the emotions are there, but they funnel those into like into various different causes. Activism, yeah, yeah. yeah. activism in a different ways. So, yes and no, I guess. Yeah. Maybe I, I, I think I, up until very recently, though, it's been mm. the case that there have been sort of aimless sort of youth movements and aimless individuals, you know. And I, I think it may it may be a very very modern phenomenon. That I, yeah, I think, possibly. I think we might finally have reached the point where. You can't use the phrase rebel without a cause anymore. Yeah, but, it, we rebel up, with too many bloody causes, yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. it'll be. Up until that point, <laughs> I, I think it's been as timeless as, as East of Eden or Giant. But, but, but contradicting what I've just said there, I think the, the emotions behind that phrase are there. My parents don't understand me. Those kind of emotions are back in the That will never go away. And that will never go which away. Which makes this a timeless story yeah. I think with, with, as much as the other films. I are. think with the timeless, with, with, with it being set in the 50s and being so much of its time in that respect, it does date it in that respect. Yeah, yeah. And it requires a level of... I think it requires a level of... Um, film knowledge to be able to pass that. When you so if you was a teenager watching that now, yeah, I don't necessarily know whether they would see that much in similarity with their world. Yeah. Whereas when yeah. they're in the twenties or you know just, just a few years later, they might watch it again and go, "Oh yeah, I was just like that when I was a teenager." Yeah. Yeah, I think the spirit behind it, or that sense of like no one understands me, is timeless. But I think that aspect of really, you know, of the sort of establishment before then, things were a lot less um you know like for instance in fashion and things like the women intended the girls tended to wear similar clothing to their mum and it's sort of leading up to that counterculture of the 1960s of having your own identity mm. as as a teenager as an adolescent person so i think it's i think it's very sort of dated in the sense of the way that they portray that the spirit is timeless the sense of of not understanding um 
feeling that your parents don't understand you and, you know, um, and misunderstood. But I think that Rebel Without a Cause is very, um, is sort of dated in its sense of what, what the causes are that you want to rebel against. And I think that it sort of represents the 1950s leading on to obviously the 1960s where teenagers and adolescents had their own identity, where before then I think the line was a lot more blurred in the sense of with fashion and music and beliefs. And, you know, obviously leading up to the counterculture, everything changed, you know, um, so, yeah, I think that the film is really classic of the causes that they're rebelling and against. Yeah, now we know that uh, Steven Spielberg's just remade West Side Story. From what we've been saying there, um, if someone was to remake Rebel Without a Cause, should they do it as, as a 1955 set period piece or could, could you set that story today? I think you could set the story today. I mean, you do, you'd have to change a hell of a lot of it to make it fit Timothy Bloody Chalamet because he gets cast in everything <laughs> these days. So um, it'll be bound to be him who's cast as James Dean in this movie. Yeah. So, but as, um, as we've been saying, though, these youth attitudes and, and emotions and experiences never never go away. No, do they? no. I, 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 I think in some ways, out of the three, it's the only one that you could probably remake. You could do other versions of East of Eden, I guess where it wouldn't feel like you're remaking a James Dean thing. And same with Giant. I think you could remake Giant as an 18-part miniseries. Um, and and it won't, people won't feel like they're remaking that James Dean movie. Whereas I think Rebel Without a Cause, more so than the other two, is a James Dean movie. And people would say, oh, they're remaking that James Dean movie. Who's going to play James Dean? Who's going to play that character? And I think that's probably yeah. the reason why that one get remade. But ultimately... You can take things from it without having to directly remake. I think that's the that's the, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Gotta hope they don't remake it. And in 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 terms of Dean, I mean his his life and career were, were sort of truncated obviously mm. with, with the terrible accident. But uh, and we, 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 we talked earlier about what might have happened to him had he lived, but have there been actors like him who we have seen sustain careers? I, I'm, I'm, I, I see a lot of uh, James Dean in Brad Pitt, for instance. Yeah, I mean, Brad Pitt was, um, up until recently, hadn't had a hit. It's kind of weird, because Brad Pitt, I always think of like as being an A-list yeah. actor, and then when he had that zombie movie a few years ago, it was the first of his movies to go over 100 million, and it was like where he's been the lead. In it, so it was just like, yeah, there's this, this people like that, um, and there's, and these actors and actresses that come out of the gate strong, and have continued on, which we talked about. I think Jennifer Lawrence yeah. fairly recently yeah. started very strong, and has continued on that route as well. Yeah. So again, you think? An actor, an <laughs> I disagree. Somewhere yeah. they make ten times more movies than they did back in the day, so they're yeah. going to have some flops. But she's still regarded as someone who you put in a movie. And it will be in contention for Oscars if it's the right picture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't. I, I think in some ways, is there nobody like James Dean? There isn't, in in a sense, yeah. Because the, how how can you be like that? Mm. Because he died so young, you can't get a handle on who he is or who who, who he wanted to be or who he's going to be. So it's hard yeah. to, to replicate that. because yeah. as, as we found talking about him, there's always an air of mystery about him. Mm. As we've said, there are certain things you'll, you'll just never know 
how how we can speculate on how his career might have developed, how it might have stalled, how it might have blossomed. We we we'll just never know, and that's all part of the the enigma and the attraction. And I think one thing is for certain: like Marilyn Monroe, like John Wayne, like some of those other mega stars of cinema, the image of him will live on way beyond our lifetimes and, and way into the future. He'll still be an image of what Hollywood was in 1950s. Yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah. he, he died at, what, 24 or whatever, but he's, he's immortal. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think it's because he represents that forever young. He'll be forever young, you know, because um, he had such a short life and he only made three films, so we only have seen James Dean in his 20s and that's all what we'll see. So he's going to forever be represented as somebody that is forever 20. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On that uh, definitive statement, um, we're going to end the podcast there. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back in another couple of weeks' time. I want to thank BFI and Quad. I want to thank our Patreon subscribers. If you haven't signed up for our Patreon, go ahead and check it out. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another great topic, and we will see you soon. Take care.